Good evening, everybody, and welcome um, to this session, very literally on foundations, um, as part of the seventh Space for Thought Literary Festival here at LSE. Um, My name is Felicity Jones, and I'm Head of Foundation Partnerships here at LSE, um, responsible for forming um, the sorts of philanthropic partnerships that we're going to showcase this evening. Very pleased to welcome you here today. Um, We have two speakers. On my right, um, Claire Wilcross-Scott, who's the CEO of the Emirates Foundation. Um, And on my left, um, Dr. Lee Elliott Major, um, who's CEO of um, the Sutton Trust. Um, I'll give you a little bit more information about them and their organisations in a moment. Um, The purpose of this um, event is to think together, really, about the challenges of philanthropic partnerships what it means to be a strategic and effective um, philanthropic actor, and particularly what it means to work with an organisation like a university. In many ways, foundations and universities are very similar. Um, We can be risky, um, but we also have to take a long-term vision. Um, We have cool missions. We like to think of ourselves as sectors, and yet we're um, also deeply individual and unique. If you said to LSE and Imperial that they were the same entity, they would react in horror. But as soon as as soon as we define ourselves as the university sector, there's a collectivity, and I think there are very similar um, interactions in the foundation sector um, globally as well. LSE um, was founded on philanthropic partnerships um, with um, our original bequest from Henry Hutchinson. More recently, um, through from the 1912, with the support of the Tata families to create an international department of social policy, right through to their current support um, for young scholars from India and Pakistan. Um, The Rockefeller Foundation, um, through the 20s and 30s and 40s, LSE was known as Rockefeller's Baby, in terms of creating a real laboratory for social science thinking. And we're very proud of all of those historic and current partnerships, not least that we're sitting in the Wilson Theatre um, and the event on Palestine is taking place in the Sheikh Zayed Theatre, generously supported by the Emirates Foundation. Um, this evening, um, we're going to um, have two um, informal short presentations from each of our speakers. Um, the purpose of gathering together is really to have um, the time for questions from you and discussion about the challenges of philanthropy. Um, I'll, we'll ask the stewards when we, we come to that to, to take questions from you. Um, and I'd like to ask you to um, give your name and affiliation. But going into um, the real core of today, um, I'll introduce Dr. Lee Elliott Major first as he's going to speak first. The Sutton Trust was founded in 1997 by Sir Peter Lample and it describes itself as a think and a do tank. Um, It's funded over 200 programmes, commissioned over 140 research studies and influenced government education policy by pushing social mobility to the top of the political agenda. Um, Dr Elliot Major is the Chief Executive of the Trust. Um, He's also Trustee of the Education Endowment Foundation. Um, He's an advisor to the Office of Fair Access and sits on the Social Mobility Transparency Board. LSE has partnered with the Sutton Trust um, on a number of widening participation schemes and Lee's going to outline that history today and also on the research, 
particularly into um, what might be described as more oblique issues around um, educational um, and social mobility around issues such as housing. To my right, Claire Woodcraft Scott, um, CEO of the Emirates Foundation. The Emirates Foundation is an independent philanthropic organisation set up by the government of the Emirates of Abu Dhabi and designed to facilitate public-private funded initiatives to improve the welfare of youth across the UAE. Their core missions are respect, inspiration, ambition and courage. Claire um, has been... Oh, excuse me. When did you become CEO? Three years ago. Three years ago, absolutely. But she brings 20 years of experience working in the field of sustainable development in the Middle East and Africa as a development practitioner, a journalist and a corporate executive. Um, Prior to joining the Emirates Foundation, she was Deputy Director of the Shell Foundation, working on social enterprises to help address global development challenges. Um, We're also proud that she's an LSE alumna with a Master's in um, Development Studies. Um, LSE's relationship with the Emirates Foundation is twofold. One was the generous support to make possible the Shakeside Theatre, but more substantively in an ongoing way, the Foundation generously supported the endowment of the new Middle East Centre, now headed by Toby Dodge. Um, With no further ado, I'll pass over to Lee, who's going to start us off. We'll speak for about 10 minutes, 15, 10. I think 10 minutes. Less is more, I find. Less is more, absolutely. Um, Obviously, time for short interventions. And I apologise, I don't have a watch, so I'm going to look at it. Oh, a big clock is marvellous, absolutely. Um, Then Claire will talk for 10 as well. Okay, thank you very much. Um, So I'll speak for about 10 minutes, and I just want to sort of, I guess, outline some of the strengths, I think, in in the partnership that we've had with LSE over probably 15 years Mm -hmm. now. Um, and then maybe I, w- I want to highlight some of the challenges as well, right? So, um, and uh, you're right, uh, Peter, so Peter Lample calls us a do tank, which I always think is a bit, a bit of a cheesy sort of um, phrase to use. But uh, what, what we mean by that is that we, we publish lots of research around the issue of social mobility. And, and the basic mission is that, you know, we want to improve social mobility through education. You know, we would argue for a world... Uh, where your social background or your income background should not determine your your educational opportunities. Uh, And we can discuss what we mean by that perhaps later, but uh, we've done lots of research around that issue and and basically we've documented relentlessly, for those of you who know us, uh, that that that, that isn't the case in the UK particularly and and, um, compared to many other countries, um, uh, we, we do poorly in terms of social mobility. But I'll come on to that because it was a an LSE study that actually really showed that and there's a nice story around that so um, so yeah so we're about research but we're also about doing that's why Peter talks about the do tank um, and we've helped well hundreds of thousands of, of children now over the last 18 years and again we do that jointly with LSE so so I think you know we partner um, with universities more generally but with LSE specifically I'd, I'd say both on the doing and thinking and I'll give you an example of each of those um, and then I'll come, I think, to some of the challenges. Just in terms of why we work with LSE, I think, you know, I was, I was thinking on the way here, well, what is it? I think, you know, it's the independence that LSE has. You know, we're, we're, we're sort of um, 
engaged in quite a, a fractious, controversial debate in many ways. You know, so a lot of people, a lot of the stuff the Sutton Trust puts out is quite controversial. So, so having an independent, authoritative source of information, I think, um, is really important. I think we would share some values with LSE as well, and that's quite important. So I think, I hope LSE would, would want, for example, to attract students from all backgrounds, you know, uh, talented students from all backgrounds. So I think we do share that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also, to be quite frank, you know, we, we have quite powerful brands and the combination of those two things makes it, we were talking about it, for our fundraising is actually actually important. So if we go to a big bank and say we're going to do a program with the LSE, I think that's actually quite a powerful uh, thing to say. So, and then and I think finally the, the other thing is complementary skills, and we'll come on to a bit about this um, uh, in the examples. So those are the pluses. I'll come on to some of the challenges later, um, and I promise I'll only take ten minutes. So, so the the example on the sort of thinking, I suppose, uh, that I would uh, cite and. You did talk about housing. We're, we're currently doing a, a research project on the issue of housing and social mobility in London at the moment, which is ongoing. Uh, and that's because we're quite concerned about, and I, I'm sure you'll all be aware of, the increasing house prices and, and what, what implication that has for mobility. That's quite unusual for us because usually we, we stick to sort of educational issues, but we think it's such a big issue. Uh, we, we, we want to document that. And LSE is the place we've come to to try and do that. What I want to talk quickly about, though, is the seminal study on social mobility in 2005, and that was um, commissioned by the Trust. It was produced by a guy called Steve Machin, who uh, some of you will will know of here, who's a very, um, I think he's very prominent, isn't he? Mm -hmm. He's quite a prominent economics Mm -hmm. professor. And I I guess um, when we spoke to Steve um, in the early days, so, so... so one of the things about academics, I'm sure if I insult any academics in the room, sorry, forgive me, but that, that they can be incredibly um, informed about an issue, but perhaps, um, I should say slow moving, but uh, that's probably the wrong, uh, but, but, but perhaps not willing necessarily to put their, their, their face above the parapet in terms of taking some of those findings and interpreting them in, in quite a sort of provocative way. And what we, what we found with Steve Machen particularly was there was this incredibly respected economics professor who was willing to work with me on a summary that made the, the, the social mobility uh, data that he had been producing and others accessible to a wider audience and to flesh out some of the implications of, of, of that study. And what that study found was basically it was it's actually strictly income mobility because what, what it was looking at was uh, to what extent does your income as a child predict your income as an adult. It, it actually looked at rankings of income in the, in the uh, income spectrum. We called it social mobility and it's upset the sociologists ever since uh, but that was the sort of catch-all term for this. So you're, essentially your chances of climbing the social ladder. Strictly, it was the income ladder that we were measuring. We looked at uh, two cohorts of children, because that was the data that, 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 that Stephen and colleagues ha- had had, and that was the 1958 cohort. So these are a study of children uh, born in 1958, and then another cohort, which was 1970, so children born in 1970. And what the economists here did was essentially look at the trajectories of those two, two cohorts. And the, the shock finding of the time, this was 2005, the, uh, the sort of Tony Blair was still uh, sort of there, and, and I think yeah, we had lots of discussions and rhetoric around creating a more meritocratic society. And at that time, you had this time, this bomb, really, bombshell, which said, one, that social mobility or income mobility was lower in this country than most other developed nations we had data for, 
the one exception being the United States of America, which surprised some people. And the other thing was that, that mobility had declined across those two cohorts. So those born in 1970 had a lower chance of climbing the income uh, spectrum uh, than, than those born in 58. So there's lots of detail in that, which I can answer details on. But what was, I think, really special for us is that, to be honest, that data was out there already. If you look at the academic literature, there was a lot of findings already there. What, what we did with Stephen Collins was summarise that data in a very accessible form, and it, and it created a huge debate about social mobility, which you still see to this day. I mean, we would, we would claim that that paper has created all, all the debate you've seen subsequently. So before 2005, it was quite an academic debate. Since then, it's really uh, been a very much, very public debate. So, so I think that would be an example of where work with LSE really helped us put the issue of social mobility on the, on the political and public map. Happy to ask any questions on detail of that. Um, I think, by the way, just timing is, is crucial with all these things. So, you know, we could have published that at a different time. Maybe it wouldn't have captured the public ima- imagination. And in many ways, we think really hard about when we commission research, when we publish, and, and, and how we do that. So, that, so there's always a, an interesting discussion about why certain research reports hit the, the public uh, consciousness. In terms of the doing bit, um, I, the one thing I would probably cite is, so we do lots of programmes, uh, you know, which, which basically take children, we pick children from state schools across the country, and um, we will either introduce them to uh, elite universities, or we help them through schools, or we, we do work in the early years as well now, and, and with parenting, and... Um, so, so I suppose the focus has been on um, getting them into uh, a good university or a, uni- a selective university, I should, mm. should say, uh, because the theory was that that would then lead to sort of a better job prospects. If you, you know, so, so that was it. I think um, what what's been changing over recent years for us is that that's we feel that's not enough actually. So a lot of our data that we found now is that you can get someone into the LSE, for example. But even then, they, they uh, face extra barriers when they graduate from university. So, so we've uh, worked now with uh, law firms, and we have a thing called Pathways to Law, where we, we, we work with LSE and a number of other universities, but we also work, work with law firms. And what we do is we get state school kids not only into the universities, but they have work placements in the law firms. And we're, we're spreading this out to other uh, sectors as well. So, so that's been an incredibly um, fruitful relationship. And again, I think there, we clearly wouldn't be able to do that without LSE so so um, I, I think that's been crucial as well and, and, and you know we're, we're, we're developing new programs in, in that space as well so so I think the, 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 the first example is really about the sort of research agenda putting that on the map the second is about something about trying to do something about it and, and that's really important for, for us so those those are two um, and interestingly actually uh, it's, big, it's come full circle this because one of the people that did one of the summer schools and went to, ended up at LSE has now become a donor to the Sutton Trust. Excellent. I told you about this. No. So, so that's been brilliant. So if we could create more of those people, <laughs> then that would really help us. Um, so, um, so in terms of challenging challenges, uh, and I'm conscious of time, so I went to it a bit. Uh, I'd, I'd say the only thing you know we are the social mobility is is, is a sort of challenge. I'd, I'd say that's getting even more uh, tough in many ways. You know, you know we can debate it but I think widening wealth inequality income inequality and and, and the education system I think is really struggling I think in terms of ensuring that that children from all backgrounds do reach their full potential so um, so I think for the Sutton Trust we are 
I, I suppose, were two things. One, we, we are increasingly doing our, our research internally, which is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. So part of the reason, to be honest, is that we, we get these bright young things who can work for us and can turn around data very quickly, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think um, what we would... Again, I'll be interested in people's views, but I think what we get from someone like Steve Machen is probably more authority who can review a whole literature, but perhaps a weakness is, you know, if we want something turned around in two months, then you, you perhaps won't do that. So I think there's, it's an interesting sort of market, if you like, around mm-hmm. research and data, and I, I think that's not exclusively universities anymore. Uh, and, and increasingly, there'll be sort of research, other research agencies that talk to us about that. So I think, you know, for LSE as a challenge, I would say, is defining your, your value added, if you like, in that space. In terms of the doing, we are increasingly interested in, in what we call high-level apprenticeships. So, um, you know, the model for us has always been, um, can you... Um, get a person into a, a university route that would then enable them to get a, 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 a better job. I think, again, for us, the data is really interesting on this. So, so not all university courses necessarily will provide that pathway, okay? And what um, we're very interested now is, given the increase in fees for, uh, for university courses, actually, for some young people, it might be a better option to do a high-level apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. And we've been looking into them, and in terms of their um, earning, earning sort of returns actually really incredibly for the, for the right high level of friendship so, so that's an interesting sort of move for us in terms of the doing and it could be that we work with a big corporate on that, now it could be that we do that with LSE or without so I think it's just another challenge I'd say for the university sector generally is you know, we are looking for other ways to improve social mobility that might not necessarily involve a university um, I think I'll, I'll finish with a final question the other thing, I just wonder whether LSE is radical enough, to be honest with you. And, and I, I, you know, we have, lot, we have lots of many good uh, university partners. Um, sometimes I feel like there is a bit of a, a tension in, you know, vice chancellors are so concerned about the funding, you know, for LSE that I think, um, I, I would argue in, in many ways, perhaps they could be a bit more radical with the access work they do. So how, to what extent are they really ensuring that, 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 that children from all backgrounds do stand a chance of getting into LSE. And I, I think there's, there is a tension in that, but we, which we could discuss. So, um, uh, so I'll, I'll stop there, but those, those are, I think, are, are some of the challenges. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Lee, absolutely, and especially that last one, I think, to be discussed. Um, <laughs> if, um, what we'll do is we'll, we'll collate the questions after hearing both presentations. Um, pass over to Claire, who's going to talk from a different perspective. I'm, I want to talk about is LSE radical enough? <laughs> Coming from the Middle East, I think, God help us if LSE is not radical enough. <laughs> but uh, no, I think that's a, uh, indeed one for a further discussion. So, um, so I'm going to talk about a slightly different angle than mm-hmm. what Lee did, um, although I will also comment on how we work with LSE. But uh, I want to just mention a little bit about some of the changes happening in the uh, philanthropic sector. So talking of radicalism, I mean, uh, we see that there is an evolution, and I like to call it a revolution, although one has to be careful how one uses that word these days, especially in the Middle East. But um, that there is something of revolution happening in the philanthropic sector, that it is the 21st century. People are conscious of the digital revolution, and um, the implications for foundations, I personally think, are quite profound, notably around accountability and transparency. So 
think that historically foundations have tended to be um, a, a little bit of lone wolves, kind of able to go off and do their own thing, um, operate very independently, not not necessarily in in a collaborative fashion, and um, and often not being asked to uh, to really disclose their output. So a lot of focus on input and not so much on output. And we are um, we've been looking at this area because we ourselves have undergone a fundamental transition as a foundation in line with this whole idea that we see now people calling for a much more business-based approach to deploying philanthropic capital. It is a trillion-dollar capital market, if you believe the likes of Matthew Bishop, uh, who writes for The Economist but writes a lot about philanthrocapitalism. And this is a huge market. Philanthropic capital is only going to grow. As you see, family-owned offices um, look for succession planning, creating endowments, creating foundations. The importance of philanthropic capital is is only going to get more and more important. It's hitting the radar screens. We are members of the OECD Global Network for Foundations. It's hitting the radar screens of developmental actors now who are saying, goodness me, we must look at this big pot of cash because um, we're running out and um, we still have massive social issues that need to be resolved, wicked problems, as Rockefeller Foundation calls them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a real shift in the sector now, which is, is welcomed, and it's really about moving from traditional grant-making, um, short-term approach to a much longer-term one, uh, with the idea, of course, that philanthropic capital needs to generate maximum impact, needs to be cost-effective, needs to create economies of scale. And there's various... Um, pieces of literature, quite seminal pieces on on this sector, talking about uh, everything from, some people call it catalytic philanthropy, some people call it strategic philanthropy, some people call it, which we do, venture philanthropy, others enterprise-based philanthropy. But the whole lexicon of this sector is changing. And I would argue that, you know, the days of check writing, thank goodness, are over. So I'll just tell you briefly about our own transition and within that, what we are and what we do. So... Um, up until three years ago, we were quite a traditional foundation in the sense that we were a typical grant-making foundation um, working in multiple different sectors, offering short-term financial support to third parties. So we weren't an operational foundation. We had um, funding from the private sector, some funding from the government, and we were essentially supporting anybody who showed up and had an interesting proposal and asked us for money. Um, Now, part of our transition... and, and And three years ago, the board of directors took a decision that that needed to change. They simply weren't creating enough social value, that there wasn't enough impact from that, what I call the check-writing model. So we started to look at our portfolio and say, well, is it really realistic to think that in the space of, you know, our grants were like 12 years, uh, 12 months, 18 months, is it really realistic to think that you can create long-term systemic change in that kind of uh, time frame, 12 months, 18 months, two years. I mean, the kind of work we do uh, as foundations is really intergenerational. It's looking at long-term uh, systemic change. And and we took the decision that actually having time-bound initiatives didn't work, that we really needed to be looking at long-term investments. Um, we also looked at our grant-making portfolio, and we said that we, had, we were giving out hundreds of grants every year, um, often with quite high transaction costs. So a lot of paperwork going associated with the grant making 
And then a lot of focus on how much money we were giving and very little on what the output was. So we weren't actually tracking our output at all. So we knew how much money we spent and we knew how many grants we had, um, but we couldn't articulate or aggregate the social value that we had created. So again, that was really um, creating an issue for us and, uh, and, and a certain level of discomfort inside the organization. And, and finally, we were doing um, what uh, still a lot of traditional foundations do, which is everything. So we had, um, we had a portfolio around social inclusion, arts and culture, science and technology, um, youth, uh, environment, uh, you name it, we had it. So we had this very diverse portfolio, giving out hundreds of grants every year, lots of different organizations, and no ability to really capture what's our impact, what are we trying to do, what's our strategic uh, goal. So we underwent three years ago uh, pretty much a, a complete overhaul of the organization. We literally, we started, we deconstructed the organization. We made it much cleaner, much more lean in terms of the focus. We decided the focus was going to be youth development and nothing else. So we decided we're just going to do one thing. And we chose that one thing on the basis of market research, uh, another great uh, new area for foundations. Look at really taking research data and allowing that to define your portfolio rather than surmising what the society wants. So we said, uh, what's one of the most important things happening in the Middle East at the moment? Of course, it's youth, youth development. Uh, we looked at what other organizations were doing um, in the UAE and figured out that there was a huge gap around youth development, that this whole issue of how do you guide and inspire young people in a highly complex 21st century where the digital revolution is changing their world on, on, a, on an <coughs> annual basis, and how do you help them navigate these complexities? So we chose that one thing, and we said, we're going to stop doing everything else. We're just going to do that. Um, at the same time, we took the decision that actually this multiple sectoral grant-making portfolio wasn't working. So we said, let's stop that too. Let's stop making grants completely, and let's build our own portfolio solutions to the challenges that we're trying to solve. So we looked at different areas of youth development that we thought were critical. For example, a large number of young Emiratis disengaged, not active in the community. Large number of young Emiratis feeling disenfranchised. Large number of youth, young people uh, not financially literate, not able to read a balance sheet, not able to become entrepreneurial, have the financial skills they need to survive. Large number of young people dropping out of education prematurely. So we started to identify specific issues facing youth in the UAE, and, um, and ironically, I think many of them are um, actually issues facing youth globally. From what I see now, three years down, very few of them, I can say, are specific to young uh, Emiratis. And we created solutions to each one of those problems. Solutions, uh, at least uh, we created a program based on trying to resolve a particular um, issue. So, for example, around the issue of young people not being engaged in society or in the community, we created volunteering programs. We found that volunteering is actually an extremely powerful way of building young people's self-confidence, building their uh, networking capabilities, building their team-leading capabilities, and ultimately also getting them into jobs. Um, so we have a couple of volunteering programs. We have a financial literacy program where we're trying to help young people understand the financial sector, how to use the financial, how to navigate the financial sector, very high levels of indebtedness amongst youth uh, in, in the UAE. Um, we, looked, uh, we created a vocational program for young people who've dropped out of higher education prematurely so that we could offer them a second chance and give them a second uh, opportunity to be trained in something different. So we created a really focused portfolio, only six programs, each one addressing a particular challenge, and we decided that we're going to stick with that until each one of those programs is scalable and we can exit it. 
hence the term venture philanthropy, operating essentially like venture capitalists. So investing in a particular issue, testing the solution, incubating it, piloting, scaling it up, and ultimately exiting. So each one of our programs is run essentially like a small business. So I look at each program, I say, okay, what are the services and products that it's offering youth? Do those youth like those? Are they filling a gap in the market? Are, we, are the outcomes of those programs tangible? Are they measurable? Are they scalable? Are they sustainable? And how cost-effective are we? So each one of our programs, we look at the cost metrics. Because if I'm trying to keep young people engaged in the community and stop them going down a, a potentially different path, I need to be doing it more cheaply, more cost-effectively than the government. Otherwise, why wouldn't I just let the government do it? So we really take a very business-based approach to running our portfolio, making sure that each one of our programs looks and sounds like a business, operates like a business, is creating economies of scale, and is run in, in a business-like fashion. That's been hugely challenging, because I inherited an organization of 100 people, so we have a large team, who had all been grant administrators. That's a very different skill set to running a business. So we've spent a huge amount of time in the last three years looking at how do you create commercial acumen, business acumen, inside a traditional foundation. Uh, and we, we continue to do that. We continue to talk to our, to our employees, our teams, around how they need to think innovatively. That's the essence of enterprise, long-term thinking. We're no longer time-bound. So each one of these programs, we don't say, okay, we're going to do the financial literacy one for three years and then we're going to stop and do something else. We're going to do the financial literacy program until every single young person in the UAE is financially literate, which will probably take some time. So that program might go on for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and hopefully we will be able to exit it such that it will carry on then alone by generating its own income. Um, so each one of the programs is essentially being evolved into a social enterprise. Uh, and and that, that whole model, so the whole model of venture philanthropy and social enterprise, I think has arisen in response to the failure of traditional philanthropy to generate real outcomes, real output. Too much philanthropy, even until today, and we found this through our engagement with the OECD network, too many foundations until today still cannot articulate their aggregate output. They can tell you what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, but they can't actually tell you what have they achieved at the end of the year. And, and that, for me, was a real challenge when I first joined Emirates Foundation. Was I thought, well, how do you guys know if you're doing a good job? How do you guys know, how do you tell the board if it's you know, red, amber, or green, your output? And they said, well, we don't actually track that. We track how much money we spend. I mean, it's, it's a fabulous model, right? You just spend the money you're given, and then you, the, the, the performance metric is, did you spend the money? Uh, and, I, and I find it shocking that in the 21st century, that model still exists with multiple foundations across the globe, that there are very few that actually talk about value creation. And, and this is the real challenge we've had, is changing the lexicon, talk about being business-based, talking about cost efficiencies, talking about economies of scale. And we still get a hard time from some more traditional folk who will tell us, you know, well, so you mean you're trying to turn this into a business? No, I'm not. I'm trying to talk about value creation. Wouldn't you like your philanthropic capital to actually serve a purpose? rather than just spray and pray into the ether and hope that something is generated by this. So, so this has been a fundamental transition for us, and we are one of the few foundations in the Middle East, I would argue, if not the only ones, who have undergone such a transition. It's been a painful but hugely rewarding process. 
And we are by no means there yet. I mean, we're at the very early stages now of taking each program and scaling it up. Uh, uh, but we believe that those programs are adding value. We believe that the beneficiaries like them, that they they want that output. So we believe that what we're doing is based on gaps in the market, that it's the right thing to do. And when I talk to my team who were there before and after, you know, there's, even without complex metrics or any kind of scientific way of processing what we're doing, they just know that what we're doing now is infinitely more impactful than what it was historically. Now, we are working on core metrics, so we now actually have a corporate scorecard. So I have an aggregate mechanism for tracking the value, the output of, of our foundation, as opposed to before, the metric was, have you spent all the money? So, um, so we're delighted to have made that kind of progress. So that's just a little bit about how, how we have uh, gone through this kind of evolution, revolution even, that we hope others in the sector, notably in the region, will, um, will look to. I mean, we're very open and honest about our case study. We're very open and honest about our mistakes, open and honest about the fact that you know, we haven't nailed it yet. But we're really trying to encourage a process of advocacy, to encourage other foundations to take a much more focused approach, much more long-term approach, much more innovative approach. Even looking at financial instruments, you know, we haven't done this yet, but others are looking at things like loan guarantees for potential investees, look, really looking social impact bonds, really trying to look at different mechanisms for creating um, social value. Now, coming back to the LSE piece, amidst all of that, I mean, we were very internally focused for a while because it was literally, we deconstructed the organization, rebuilt it, rebranded it, uh, and everything else. But... I mean, I fundamentally believe you cannot do philanthropy without collaboration. You cannot create social value in 12 or 18 months, and you cannot do it in isolation. It has to be collaborative. So we work very closely with government entities to, to assess what they're doing and, and make sure we don't duplicate it, uh, but complement it. We work very closely with the private sector, A, because they fund our programs, and B, because I think as a foundation, if you don't know what's happening in the market, then you have a problem, especially when your focus is like ours is youth development. So I cannot stand up publicly and talk to young people and advise them on you know, their future opportunities in society if I don't understand what's happening in, in the private sector. So we work very closely with them, and we work very closely with academia, um, and, and often to act as a bridge between academia and the private sector, uh, ironically, where um, we're also doing some work, as indeed Lee we're talking about, trying to help young people connect with, um, with employment opportunities in the private sector and, and really get the access that, that sometimes they uh, struggle to get. So coming to our relationship with LSE, I mean, that I think is just indicative of the, the way we, we operate. Um, we... Uh, we are big believers in partnership. Almost everything we do is in partnership. And I think for, for us, if we're not talking to academia, we're not understanding our feedstock. I mean, the input <laughs> to, to our programs is coming from academia. Um, and uh, it's hugely important for us to be able to understand the links between academia, philanthropy, and the private sector. Now, LSE, obviously, an international school and, and not one necessarily in the region, but the program that we have uh, with LSE now, I think is uh, potentially very powerful. I just met with two of the uh, Egyptian uh, students that are doing a master's degree now thanks to the program, and it was amazing to hear their story. So they were saying, you know, we, we got into LSE and it was actually quite depressing. And I was like, what? What do you mean it was depressing? Well, we got accepted by LSE and we just knew there was no way that we were going to be able to, to fund this. So it's almost like they'd, they'd applied just to test their capabilities of getting into an international university. And, and they got there and sort of rolled their eyes and said, well, that's fabulous, but we'll never make it. So anyway, the two of them, thanks to the program, have now been able to fund their master's degree. Um, two very smart uh, Egyptian ladies, importantly, because mm -hmm. um, they're both looking at areas of public policy, and I encourage them both to um, 
you know, to think in the future about a, a career where they, in the public sector where they have voice. Let's face it, Egypt's going to need a lot of um, sensible advisors in the years to come. Um, so uh, I think this for us is, you know, we work with LSE in that way as, as we would with local universities in, in the UAE, very collaboratively trying to understand what, what are they learning about young people, what are we learning. And, and just um, as a final thought, I just think that, you know, the world is a much more complex place now than it was uh, decades ago, the... Uh, the founder of Ashoka talks about this exponential speed of change. And I think, you know, people say, well, why would it be more complex in the 21st century for a young person than in the last one? Well, it is because of that. You know, we don't know what the jobs of the future are. Um, we, don't know, we don't know how young people are going to be able to create a competitive advantage. We don't know how the labor market's going to look in five or ten years. Is it going to be commoditized? Will we all be selling our skills online? And I think it's just a highly uncertain time for everybody, um, and that makes it very difficult as a young person to navigate these complexities, and times that by 10 when you're living in, in the Middle East. Um, so I think you know the role of foundations is now more critical than ever. Foundations are independent. They can bridge the gaps. They can be innovative. They can be risk-taking. Um, but it's really important that they're effective. Uh, and I just think the time has come now for us to be really open and accountable and transparent about our output not just measuring impact, input, but really making sure that we are having a measurable, scalable, and uh, sustainable impact on society. Stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, they were both um, hugely provocative and interesting um, introductions to what, sort of what I think of as observing simply from the outside as a constantly evolving space around foundations, and I think one of the most potentially interesting and innovative risk-taking sectors that can also be um, a provocative um, voice within universities as well. I think, you know, it's also about the partnership into our organisations as well as the partnerships between. Um, I'm certainly burning um, with questions. Um, I think that the themes that have emerged between the two presentations around intergenerational um, equity, access, fairness, leverage, effective philanthropy, effective partnership, um, also a focus on outputs, but a very nuanced understanding of outputs. This is not a, a simple data metric. Um, it's the example you were giving about the analysis and the impact of data um, as well. Um, but I'm sure that there are many more and many more eloquent questions from the floor. Um, our two panellists have, have um, generously offered um, a lot of the time of the panel to, to, to you for questions and discussion. I'd like to start that now. Um, if you could show some hands. Um, we'll take maybe two or three questions at once. Okay. Um, if you could tell me who you are, um, Hi, where you're I'm, from, and your question briefly, please. I'm, my name is Mike Holmes. I've just walked in off the street, so I'm not... <laughs> Excellent. Um, <laughs> I'm not anybody in particular. Um, Thank, thank you for two, you know, Sorry, thank you for, I mean, two very, very good speeches. Um, I think for Claire, I, I'm, it's a very pointy question, and I hope you kind of accept it in the, in the way it's meant. Um, I mean, I, it sounds as if your organisation is, you know, really coming to grips with, with the issues involved of, of this kind of philanthropy. But isn't, doesn't the fact that nobody else is doing this really show that um, this kind of philanthropy is just kind of an ideological tool, you know, of, of the whole kind of capitalist system of kind of throwing money back at people and as, as long as they can say they're doing it, then it doesn't really matter what the outcomes are. 
I mean, that, that's... that's uh, can, can, okay. I start, Wait, can I just question? Can I put a question to Lee as well? <laughs> okay. and, then, and, and the other question is, we talk about social mobility, but when we're talking about social mobility, we always assume it's a good thing. But for people to go up, yeah. necessarily people have to come down. And nobody really ever talks, talks about that. Everybody goes, oh, there's not enough social mobility. But why, 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 do we, why do we always say there's not enough social mobility when for people to go up, people necessarily come down on, on the measures that you're using? I mean, what we really should be talking about is taking everybody up. And, and the mobility stuff is, is irrelevant because really, you know, you should be getting the people from the bottom up and maybe the people at the top should be standing still. You know, that's, what, that's the kind of thing the LSE would be talking about. And I think the idea of social mobility is just a, you know, everybody goes, oh yes, not enough social mobility. And can we talk about it in a, in a rational way? Because for people to go up, people need to come down. And that's not really what we want. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I was going to pull some questions, but I think that first question is actually provocative and broad enough. Yes, and actually, absolutely. I think, relates to, to both speakers. Do you want yeah. to start off, Claire? Absolutely. Thank you for that question. Um, a lot of people, uh, a lot of corporates come to me and they say, look, we're thinking about setting up a foundation. What do you think? And I say, please don't. Please don't set up a foundation. I'm not a big fan of foundations at all because I think foundations can absolutely be a massive cop-out. And, um, you know, and I've worked for corporate foundation before. I worked for Shell Foundation. So I say to them, I would much rather see you reinvent your business model for it to be more ethical and more responsible and that you are managing negative externalities through your fundamental business model rather than bolting on some kind of philanthropic ring-fence tax incentive entity that you're going to then be able to ignore from the business because you say, oh, that being good to the community stuff, yeah, yeah, we do that over there in the foundation. So I, I think foundations will be obsolete in, um, I would like to think foundations will be obsolete in 10 or 20 years' time. No one will need to have a separate ring fence pot of cash to do good for the society. It will simply be integrated into your business model. You have a much more sustainable approach to doing business whereby you look at the entirety of your stakeholder base and not just your shareholders and your customers. And you understand that if you screw over the rest of your stakeholders and only focus on the ones that, that are connected directly to your balance sheet, it is going to come back and bite you. It's going to have a reputational risk. It's going to have a non-technical risk. And it could even wipe out your, your share price. And we're seeing examples of that now. So absolutely, I'm a big and it's kind of ironic because I run a foundation so I um, spend a lot of time uh, telling people not to set up a foundation and how foundations are, are not necessarily the solution. Now I would say there's a slight difference in our case in the sense that we leverage private sector capital and government capital to, so we're not a corporate foundation and it's a slightly different model but I, I would never um, you know, is, is this the best way to create socioeconomic value and solve the world's problems? Not necessarily. However, if this is the only way that you can extract ring-fenced um, corporate money to invest in difficult problems, so as is our case, so we're pooling money from the private sector. And by the way, our corporate partners are giving us unrestricted funding. So I don't give them any branding. I say, you give me the money, I'm creating a public good, you go talk about it if you want. But your name is not on the hats, it's not on the T-shirts, it's not on my building. If you want to go and, and say, look, we've given X amount of money to Emirates Foundation and they're doing great stuff, go ahead. But I'm not going to extol your virtues in any particular way. So, so it's an interesting model, but, but ultimately, would I like to see foundations disappear and that we have a much more effective and sustainable capitalist model? Absolutely. Yeah, just on that, there's two really good questions from off the street, yeah, I have to say. Absolutely. My God. Um, 
I think for us, it's, it's really interesting hearing you speak because I, I think we've been through a similar journey in many ways and we, we work really hard on measuring the outcomes of, of how we spend our money and that's held us in really good stead in terms of our fundraising. So when we yeah. go to individuals yeah. and so we do rates of return, we do, yeah, you know, yeah. we, 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 for every pound you invest in something trust, we generate 15 pounds in, you know, so we look at that. I think we, we've challenged some of the big corporates actually, so you, you're spot on with some of this. I think that, that there has been this tendency to just throw a bit of money back and in a rather tokenistic way but we now sort of say look we we want some of your money to do what we do but we also want some of our kids to get into your organization so we we kind of challenge them so it's not just about philanthropic donations it's about you know living you know actually seeing your own organization take some of our children now that has been really interesting because some organizations are up for that and others i'm not going to mention any names aren't basically you know so so i think it's a really good question and and uh, yeah we always say to individuals um and uh, organizations that you know you want your money spent effectively and you'd be amazed at how these hard-nosed business people in the yes. core business will be, you know, really hard. But then you get into philanthropy and yeah, it's, yeah. it's sort of... They just want the feel-good factor. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, and often it actually can do more harm than good. Absolutely. Anyway. So, yeah. so I think that's a really good question. But we are, I think it is changing a little bit. Um, and it is ir- ironic in some ways, isn't it? Because, you know, the inequalities that we're sort of we're campaigning in a sense against are the, are the things that are creating the wealth that then comes back mm. for us to do some good stuff. So I, I take the point. Um, on the social mobility uh, question, that, that is, uh, yes, a very good question. I mean, I think you know, the, the, the Machin study, the LSE study, was looking at relative social mobility. So it was where you come in, in terms of your rank, right? Not absolute mobility, which is basically, you know, where, where, you, where, where do you sit one generation to the next? We can talk about this later. It gets a bit technical. But essentially, um, they, they did look at where you rank, okay? And I, I do think that's important. I mean, there was a study in the U.S. recently uh, that found... This is, this is to do with the wealth uh, inequality debate, actually, you know, the Piketty stuff, um, that... There were, there were children who'd done less well in tests that had come into the bottom two quintiles in, 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 the, in the nation. But because they were inheriting wealth, increasing uh, wealth inequalities, that they, 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 their rank in the, as adults were actually you know, very high um, compared to their actual talents, if you like. So I would argue that actually, yes, we want some bright young people who just happen to come from poorer backgrounds higher up the income spectrum than some of those uh, people that don't, don't have those particular talents. Now, I would say with all this, that this is you know, one measure of outcomes. Well, I remember the matrix so he looked at earnings. Mm-hmm. Now, sociologists look at social class. We have to be really careful with these debates, of course, because it's only one way of assessing life's outcomes. And, you know, and I've got very good friends who would look like they were downward mo- downwardly mobile. So I've got a very good friend whose uh, d- dad was a, a doctor, and his mum was an MP, actually, and he's ended up being a park ranger, right? Now, now in earnings-wise, he'd probably look... But actually, he's very happy, he's got a lovely family. You know, his work-life balance is pretty good, actually. Uh, he's probably inherited some money from, from his parents, I guess. Uh, but, you know... I, even though I would say our mission is to improve social mobility through education, you know, you have to be a bit careful because you have to be quite simplistic in some of the analysis. So, um, but we can talk about it but later. But I would say, yes, you, you should have some downward mobility. Okay. So, right, we'll open it again. Yeah. One, two, one, two. 
thank you for that. Uh, my name's Martin Thomas. I work for a children's charity uh, called Viva. Uh, two quick questions to, to both of you. Um, around the corner from our office in Oxford, um, we, we found out a few years ago that children were being trafficked, and then it hit the news, uh, the Bullfinch trial, um, that I'm sure you're aware of. Um, We've discovered that, uh, as we've been doing some mapping um, in the UK, uh, which we normally work with children around the world internationally, um, is that the majority of the work that's been done with young people and children is being done by the the voluntary sector and volunteers. Um, uh, So the the question for that is, there's a lot of research that's been done at the the high level, LSE, other institutions. How do we enable um, intelligent responses to to the needs of our our children and young people um, where they're not really hearing that research, um, it's not actually filtering down to the people that are actually doing most of the work. So that's one question for you, Lee. Um, so to Claire, um, we got given a grant uh, a few years ago by um, uh, a foundation in the States, a two-year grant, $20,000 um, per year for work with children. Uh, they complained at the end of the two years that we hadn't changed the situation in terms of girl-child in India. Okay. Yes, why hadn't we? Why hadn't we? Um, we said, did you really think that that was what was going to, to happen? Um, one of my concerns is that there's not a conversation being held between the big foundations, uh, the government, statutory multilats, and the charities who are still doing some really good impact work and, and are starting to evidence that. Um, where, is, where is the ability for that, that meeting place to, to take place? Thank you. Shall I come back on there? Yeah. Research question. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and I hope one of the strengths of Sutton Trust is that we have enabled practitioners on the ground to actually use research. And, and the one example I'd give you is with one of my passions, but it is a thing called the um, Sutton Trust uh, Toolkit for Teaching and Learning, which, which um, went, well, now has been used by I think about 70% of schools in this country. And that tries to, in, in a very accessible way for a busy teacher or head teacher, summarise what we know about education and what are the things that they should try as best bets. And what, what, what we wouldn't say to a professional is you should definitely do this. What we would say is here's some things that seem to work on average from the worldwide research that we've gathered. Trial it in your own school, see if it works um, for you. The thing that we found with that, so we've had incredible success in terms of the number of schools that now say they've looked at the toolkit, partly, I think, because Ofsted sort of said, oh, you should do, which, which, which uh, mm-hmm. helped in some ways. The problem has been um, is the intelligent use, if I, if I call it. So, um, so one of the uh, things in the toolkit was around use of teaching assistants, for example. We found, on average, they had zero impact on the attainment of children. I had to tell... Uh, 200 teaching assistants this at a conference wow. once on the last day of term in Cambridgeshire, which was quite an experience. But uh, the and and the thing about that was that the, the toolkit, that the entry for TAs, it, it wasn't saying that teaching assistants sack all your teaching assistants. It was saying that they weren't prepared well enough, they weren't managed well enough by the teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so the reading of the research beneath the headline was actually really important. So so I think we've. In education, I'd say we've moved more towards a more evidence-based approach, but I think we're very, very early stage. And it actually goes to some of the comments earlier about scale-up. Um, you know, we, we, some of the best-performing schools we find will take up the toolkit and use it very well. But if, if we want some of the schools that we're really interested in, yeah, the schools that are really up against it, we found that more challenging. So how you scale up something, even when you've got the evidence... 
I don't think anyone actually knows. And we're actually doing research projects now into how you scale up that effort. Research into research. So, you know, do you use do you use a research champion in the school? Do you have a local charity in each of the area, you know, regions of the country? Do you do it through a conference? Do you do it a combination of these things? So we're actually, for the first time, trying to research that. Um, and LSC and other universities mm. are helping us evaluate that. Mm. So we don't have all the answers yet, but I do think you're right. It's, it's a real, uh, real issue. Yeah, and just to pick up on that, I mean, I think, you know, we're operating in such a complex space. You know, I say to people, it's much harder to create real, so it's great, it's very easy to do check writing, but it's much harder to create real social mm. value than it is commercial value. It's much easier to create widgets than, mm. than systemically change, uh, change society. But going back to the first great question, I mean, to me, what you're talking about, and I've witnessed it myself firsthand uh, years ago when I was working in Palestine with NGOs, you know, it, that is a liability. Them giving you that $20,000 is actually a liability because they're going to demand that you create systems and process and allocate people around that. And then after two years, if you say, well, you haven't resolved issues for children in India, well, we're not giving you any more. Well, hang on. What about the systems and the process that we set up that we wanted to continue in order that we can solve the problem? Well, sorry, we're not doing that anymore because we decided now we're going to go, uh, we're going to do Save the Whale. And, and it's this, you know, jumping from one issue to another that funders do this absolutely destroys capability in the third sector and is shocking. And I always say it's, it's absolutely they're creating liabilities. Now, how do you solve it? Uh, well, the other part of the liability is when they say to you, um, how much did you spend on the actual program and how much on overheads? Because we don't want to fund overheads. Well, overheads are people. So how am I supposed to run this program if I can't hire people? So get over your 70, 30, 80, 20 ridiculous mantra about overheads. Uh, and there's a great guy in the US, Dan Pelota, who speaks very well on this stuff. Um, so, so yes, there is a massive problem away, uh, around how large foundations fund, and even donors. I was at a, at a meeting in Brussels a few years back with the EC bods, and uh, we were talking about, ironically, um, aid effectiveness. And I thought, haven't we had that conversation 20 years ago? I thought LSE. Mm. Anyway, the EC in Brussels are still talking about aid effectiveness. God bless them. And one of the guys was saying, um, yeah, yeah, you, you know, because now we give like grants for two whole years. And I think that's real progress. And I was like, really? In the 21st century, we're having that conversation? So it is a big problem. And there are lots of people that are still living in the past. But we have tried to be part of that conversation. So when we joined the OECD network, the OECD came to us and said, we want to set up a global network. Are you interested? We said, only if you actually do something useful and it's not a talk shop. And the most useful thing you can do as the OECD, because you have great convening power, is talk about the need for a fundamental shift in philanthropy and how people fund and all these things that I've just talked about. And they kind of went, oh, okay, we'll try and do that. They kind of half got it, not entirely, because it is still quite a bureaucratic institution. But we have been working with them. They've got us now into the development discourse, if you like. So we were invited to speak in Mexico last April around the the, the UN Global Partnership, I think it's called, the DAC stuff, where they're basically reinventing um, the Millennium Development Goals. They're calling them yeah, SDGs now instead of MDGs, like that's going to make them more effective, but maybe it will. And they've gone from being focused on eight to now having 17. That's a whole other story. But we tried, as the philanthropic sector, to come in and say to them, guys, all the stuff that we're talking about in terms of short-term to long-term focus instead of dispersed, really going at it, looking at accountability and outputs, you should be doing that too. You as the international development community, you as UN organizations, World Bank, IMF, all the other guys. Um, so we have tried to kickstart that conversation inside that community. But it's very difficult. And what's ended up happening is they've ended up coming back and talking about, 
yeah, yeah, so what is the role of philanthropy in development? And I'm saying, no, 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 that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how can you make philanthropic capital more effective? And by definition, how can you make IDC capital more effective? Yeah, yeah, so the role of philanthropy, and, and it's just, it's almost like <laughs> getting the, the language and the conversation to happen is, is really difficult. So we are trying to do that uh, through this OECD network. And I think... Um, you know, there are more and more foundations like you guys that are talking, you know, a return on investment. And I think the more you get that kind of lexicon inside the philanthropic sector, then you're going to start to get a much more business-based output. So when I go to my corporate partners now and I say to them, you know what, uh, I'm not giving you restricted funding. Don't come and tell me that $20,000 is for this. No, no, no. $20,000 is going to go to my pot of funding and it's going to fund my programs, which are good and are going to be scaled up. And if you want demonstration of that, I will give you my financially audited statements at the end of the year and I invite you to be part of our portfolio. So come in as a corporate, just like you guys do. Come and engage with young people. Send me your employees as volunteers. Let your CEO be a mentor. Really come and engage. Then I don't need to give you some stupid report at the end of the year because you can see firsthand and you know what we're doing. And by the way, I want you to make a long-term multi-year commitment because then you allow me to plan and scale up and create real output. Mm-hmm. But I, I totally empathize, sympathize. Uh, I don't have the final solution, I'm afraid, but, but I think but it's the change mm-hmm. in the sector that is happening that I hope will demonstrate to others that, that things need to change. Um, and I'm sort of also going to just respond to your, que- your point about how we translate research, um, because I think there's a real role for foundations to come in and enable academics to unleash their own creativity and innovation in that. We're constrained also as institutions by definitions of impact, um, that in a UK context, a research assessment exercise defined and so on. They're about policy publications, they're about interaction. Um, to give you a very small example, one of our research units had done an ethnographic study of um, care assistance in dementia wards. Um, it was funded by a research council, and the impact of that was meant to be assessed in how many journal articles and impact um, you know, policy statements and so on. Um, they realised rapidly that the, the people that were never going to hear that research or get any access to it were the care assistants. So they went and negotiated with the Research Council to release all of their impact funding to create a theatre piece. But that, that was not um, normal, in inverted commas. It wasn't normal to think in that way, and it certainly wasn't normal to fund it. Um, and similarly, the rapid reaction, so Reading the Riots, for example, which was funded by Joseph Rowntree Foundation, as well as um, a rapid response European Social Research Council, um, also had public meetings to share that. Um, you can be the, the agents to come in and ask us why we're not doing more of that. Mm. I think there's a willingness and a desire, particularly amongst, and I will defend LSE, is quite radical in its academics in that point of view, um, a desire to translate that, that knowledge to the people who, who have been involved in the co-production of it and are going to be involved in the inaction of it. But I think there's, a, there's mm. an exploration of a space of dialogue as well as a space of exchange. Um, and foundations can, can come and ask us those questions um, about our own creativity and innovation. Okay, in as well. we'll do that. Then. And that's my <laughs> challenge to you. Please do, absolutely. Um, I'm sure there's more questions from the floor. The lady in black here will take this question first, and then there are two questions at the back. And we'll take the three together. 
Hi, um, my name is Juliet. I work for Paul Hamlin Foundation. This is more of an observation rather than a question. First of all, I really think Claire should lead the development of the foundations in the UK because <laughs> the whole the corporate mindset, there are difficulties linking that with the charity world, but are just more ballsy, get on with it, change things, stop being so airy-fairy. It just is... Charity world, I do respect you. I, I have worked in charity world, but I'm sure you all understand there are meetings upon meetings upon meetings upon meetings, and nothing ever happens. So I really respect Claire. I think she could lead the development of the UK Foundation. Thank you. And also, from the point of view of creating a partnership between LSE and another trust, I think that's such an excellent way of doing it. I did my master's last year at Cass Business School in grant-making, philanthropy and social investment, and I loved doing it. met really amazing people. I was very pleased with my dissertation. But who's going to read it? And it was really useful. And the people I know who've read it are really informed. But so much research is done at the universities. And nobody reads it. And it's such a good partnership to build. And I really hope the UK foundations pick up on the value that that could bring them. Because they don't need to employ full-time staff to do the research. They get ex-settled mm-hmm. people to do it. They enjoy doing it. And then they get the impression and they understand what they are funding and how it's working. So it's a really good partnership. Sorry, no questions. I was just no. thinking both. Great. I do think um, what, what I've noticed as well is that uh, for us, often it's the, um, the older academics that are, can do the impact stuff. Because mm. if you're a young academic, if, if you want to be, you, you, you're on that journal rat rate, right? You're, you're, do you know what I mean? You're, you're having to... You, you, and it's been really interesting. We met a lot of young academics, some of whom are at LSE, and they, they struggle with it, actually, because they want to do the impact mm. stuff, but because of the academic career... Mm-hmm. And I know you, there's, there's the impact stuff in REF, in ref, yeah. but, but generally, if you're a younger academic trying to make it, you, you're, you spend less time on the impact stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, have, I do think that is an issue, actually. You know, so you have to be a mature professor mm-hmm. before you can almost do that. Mm-hmm. There's a liberation from, yeah, the, yeah. from the routine, absolutely. Um, and I, I know, for example, um, the Lever Human Trust have ex- invested exactly in, that, in an emeritus professor scheme. Right. They recognise that it's that point of exit from... Mm, you can say what you want when you're an emeritus. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's due yeah. to do that. Um, we'll take those two further questions at the top and then let's them together. And by the way, I do agree with Claire. I mean, I, mm, I just love yeah. the way you talk about it. I mean, we, we would agree with everything you said. I mean, I think we would probably be unusual, though, in the UK, mm. I suspect. Um, Globally, you're unusual. <laughs> yeah. So you look at our board, it's 25 business people. I mean, that's, that drives yeah. us a little bit, though. Yeah. So they're... Yeah. That's great. Um, hi, my name is RuPaul Mystery and I'm with the Ashmore Foundation, which is a corporate foundation. And so my question is to Claire, you, you paint a really bleak picture of the world of foundations. Um, and I just wondered if, um, with the Emirates Foundation, you'd done any consortium funding or had philanthropic partnerships with other foundations to then go on to fund organisations? Because I know one of the issues that a lot of... NGOs face is that they've got you know, 25 different don- donors who all have 25 different reporting requirements yeah. and different impact measurements and mm. I wondered if you tried it because I've not seen much of it I've seen bits and pieces um, yeah. Yeah. Well we're uh, and no I don't mean to paint a bleak picture I'm, a, I'm an eternal optimist and I think philanthropic capital is, is great and there's huge potential for it I just want it to be deployed more effectively so I, I may have an issue with the construct of a foundation but I'm absolutely not saying we shouldn't have philanthropy. I think philanthropy is wonderful, and, um, and, and it's growing and should grow. It should be, but it should be more impactful. Uh, we are not a funding foundation anymore. We're an operational foundation. So we fund our own programs because we found that that was more effective than giving out lots of money to third parties and then kind of hoping that maybe some good would come of it. 
However, uh, and, and I absolutely take your point. I mean, it's the same point that was made earlier, this whole the transaction costs and the reporting standards are just outrageous. I mean, a Shell Foundation, where I used to work, we never used to ask for a specific report for us. We used to invest in, in social enterprise. And we say, look, you do your business plan. We will hold you to account on the basis of are you following your business plan or not. So you create your own reporting mechanisms and if you're meeting your metrics and we'll have a discussion, a sensible discussion on that, then we're happy to continue funding you. And again, our funding wasn't time-bound. So we were looking at you know, social enterprises selling products and services in India to reduce indoor air pollution, for example, cook stoves. So you know, they had sales targets. So whether we continued to fund them or not was based on whether they'd hit their business targets. Very sensible. No you know, having to have dedicated people inside the organization who are having to construct funding reports for different donors, which I agree, totally ridiculous. I, when I worked in Palestine for a tiny NGO, we got some money, again, from the European uh, Commission, and we actually refused it in the second year. We said the transaction costs of reporting to you is undermining our ability to do our day job. So thanks very much, but we don't want your money, which was just crazy. Sadly, I, 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 I mean, there are some efforts now to do what you're talking about, to pool funding, but it's about having this conversation around accountability. So, you know, if I'm funding in an organization and I know it well and I'm engaged with it and I'm working with it in a hands-on capability, I don't need you to send me a bespoke report at the end of the year. I know if you're having problems. And that's why I like the model of venture philanthropy. It's like venture capitalists. You know, you're very much engaged, you're hands-on, you're monitoring the business. Is it growing? Is it successful? And I think that's the approach that I would recommend. And, and you know, if it can be done through pooled funding, uh, all the better. I mean, there, there are some... You know, entities that, that like there's the Shikalulu organization in South Africa that pools corporate funds and then um, funds uh, third parties. But, um, but that, when I was talking about the need for t- paradigm shift, that's absolutely one of the key areas around this whole reporting and accountability. Because, of course, if you have accountability, then you don't need this massive industry of report writing and, and, and you know, donor responses. I want one thing, I suppose I'll challenge you a little bit because I agree with 99% of what you're saying. Uh, the only thing I suppose, because I, 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 I think the Sutton Trust, you know, uh, you know we, today we met the education secretary. Mm. It's probably, what, the seventh or eighth se- education secretary we've met, <laughs> right? We, so I suppose I worry a little, you know, I want Sutton Trust to be here in 50 years' time, mm. still doing the work that we're doing. It's probably being funded philanthropically. To, um, and, and the idea of venture capital, I, I suppose venture you, know, it, it, there was a, you want a permanent sort of, I, I suppose you, I, I feel like the, the charitable mm. sector is, needs to be there to do the things for us. It's about social mm. mobility. I fear that if we weren't there doing it, yeah. I'm not sure if it would get done, right? So oh, I, suppose, I suppose it's just, you know, I, I would hope that you can create permanent structures that, that are constantly changing. Do you know what I mean? I, mm. I, I suppose I just slightly worry the idea of seed funding things that then last for a bit and then. Mm-hmm. Do, do, do you know what I mean? It's, it's sort of that, that's what I worry yeah, no, a little absolutely. bit. Absolutely, and, and I wouldn't want you to think that that was what I was suggesting. Absolutely not. I mean, I believe philanthropic capital should fill the gaps, right? It's got to be doing the stuff the government's not doing yeah. that the private sector wouldn't do. Mm. Um, but I think the idea of venture philanthropy is, is, is simply that you test stuff before you scale it up. Right. So rather than us surmise that what young people need is X and go out and plow all our money into mm. X, we actually make sure that we're really sure of, of mm. that, that, that that's actually the solution. Sure. And that might change over time. So our yes. programs are constantly yes. evolving, actually, because the, the issues 
yeah. get change with time. So you want flexible funding partners, right, mm. who understand that you're still going down the right course, but don't yeah, say, yeah. well, yeah. you know, you're not doing what you were told you, you, you should be doing, therefore we're pulling the funding. And, and yeah, that, yeah. I think, there's a point about the mm. funders having this flexibility and open-minded. Mm. I guess you don't fund social mobility in the UK, do you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> not currently, unfortunately. <laughs> no, we'll do. I'll see. But I suppose you, you invest in the kind of human capital that's going to make those, those real challenges to social mobility. In terms of the long-term investment in, in children's access to education, internships, yeah, apprenticeships. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, as I said, it, it's been really interesting because we now have a donor to the Sutton Trust who was one of our beneficiaries, oh. which is lovely. And, and I always think it'd be great if we could <coughs> help someone who's a future Prime Minister because then we might get some <laughs> government support as well. But um, we have actually got a couple of MPs that are prospective MPs that are Sutton Trust beneficiaries. So, so there is... Hopefully. To be honest, when, when Sir Peter set it up, he set it up in, in a very sort of philanthropic way, so he didn't want the children to feel beholden to him. Now we're completely ruthless. We will get every single name, we will, we will make sure, and they want to give back, actually. Absolutely. So it, the model has changed. But you're scaling uh, yeah. up, that's great. Yeah. Absolutely. The is out. Yeah, the question at the back there. Hi, um, my name's Lee Cody. I'm the Head of Marketing for Local Giving. Um, we're a social enterprise um, which is funded by uh, the Local Giving Foundation, which was set up by uh, a philanthropist, uh, Marcel Speller. Um, and um, what we do is really kind of quite linked into what Claire's been talking about in terms of venture philanthropy, but it's uh, taking it in a slightly different way. Um, we're very keen in pushing effective philanthropy uh, within the UK, and um, what our mission is for the organisation is basically to enable um, local charities and community-focused charities to be sustainable. Um, so a lot of what you're talking about in terms of not relying on grants um, and having that funding cut off, which leaves particularly smaller volunteer-led organisations open to basically just being shut down. Um, we're trying to essentially use philanthropic investment from whether it's from private donors or the corporate sector um, to engage um, smaller voluntary-led organisations to um, fundraise on their own by using match funds uh, to encourage public fundraising through online donations uh, and so forth. Um, and I was wondering um, how you see that kind of model fitting in with something uh, which is obviously more programme-focused, like you're doing with uh, the foundation in order to set up these programmes through venture philanthropy. Well, I mean, but our program is we're also doing exactly what you're doing. So at the moment, the mothership, Emirates Foundation, funds the programs. But the programs are now on a transition to generating their own income, either by individual, by using online platforms, or by selling the products and services that they are currently offering youth, by starting to charge for those, and by us trying to, over time, reduce the subsidy. So um, I think it sounds like you're going absolutely down, down the right track. And... You know, it's not easy for social entities to generate an income. You know, when I go to my teams, to my volunteering team that's running a volunteering program, I say, you guys need to be covering some of your costs and generating a basic income. And they say, what are you talking about? You know, I'm a volunteering program. Well, no, actually, there are ways. So we go, for example, to big corporates who say, we want to run a volunteering program for our employees. And we say, good, don't do it yourselves. We'll do it for you, and we'll charge you a fee. And that's just one way. So it's very much an exploratory journey at the moment. But, but I think as long as... No one's kind of done this stuff yet. It's very early days for, for all of us in figuring out how do you render these philanthropic entities truly sustainable and, and independent. Um, but I think as long as you 
going down, you have that principle because it forces you to be more efficient. The idea of income generation forces you to be market-based, so you make sure the products and services that you're issuing are indeed needed in the market. Uh, and secondly, you're going to try and do it uh, with good branding and outreach. And thirdly, you're going to try and do it cost-effectively. So I think adopting the principle that you are constantly striving for financial independence will help you become a, a more impactful organization inevitably, even if you still end up in the future being dependent for a certain percentage of your uh, income from a traditional donor. I mean, I'll just add a slightly different for us, but I, we do work really hard on diversity of income for us. So we, we were very fortunate in the early days So Peter Lample, our you know, chairman, funded the whole trust, right? So that was nice, but you're dependent on one funder, one philanthropist. And now it's about a third, a, a third from individuals, a third from trusts, and foundations, and a third from, from corporates, roughly. Okay, but we're looking into other... And actually, universities match our funding as yeah. well. So, and we're constantly looking for new sources of, of income, actually. And because if one of those goes, then we, we have, you know, it's, it's not rocket science, this, but it is, it is hard work, actually. And you have to, you know, the trust and foundation, there's different rules and strategies for that to individuals. So, you, you know, you, having a diversity of income is really important for us. So, time for a couple more questions. I know there's um, first gentleman towards the front and then the second gentleman in the tie and, and you. Okay, we'll take Hi, the three um, together. Oh, thank you. I'm Charles Keenan. I'm, I'm philanthropy practice uh, fellow at City University London but formerly director of the Pears uh, Family Foundation. Um, thank you for a fascinating and very candid discussion. Um, just a question to Claire. Uh, just uh, wondered if you can say a little bit more about the process by which the foundation for which you work shifted mm-hmm. from a more reactive foundation that would maybe name buildings and do all sorts of things related to, to that kind of philanthropy to the more strategic, purposeful and effective foundation that you describe in presentation tonight and what happened at governance level that allowed that decision-making to take root within the foundation? Good question. I think we'll take the other yeah, should we first, take the, the three questions together, absolutely? Hello. Um, thank you for your excellent speeches. A very interesting discussion. Um, my name is David Martin. I'm the, from the Alvin Weinberg Foundation. We're the world's only charity dedicated to next-generation nuclear energy. So we work in a niche, but we try to stimulate that for to solve climate change. Um, thinking about, um, Claire and um, Lee have said, about public-private partnerships and wicked problems and uh, filling in the gaps, I was wondering, do you think there's a role for entrepreneurial philanthropy, what I call entrepreneurial philanthropy? I don't think that need be a contradiction in terms... Um, in taking risks to directly solve um, wicked problems, such as through directly funding technological development, working with startups or whoever. Yeah. Thank you. And then there was a final question here. Yeah, absolutely. It's been great, thank you. Um, just picking up on the question that that gentleman asked uh, earlier on, and this is directed towards you again, Claire. Um, I've really enjoyed the passion, the way that you've been communicating. It's been great. Um, and it seems to me that I've got a little sneaky feeling that probably your gift is far more than to the Emirates Foundation in terms of the impact that you can have. And without blowing smoke up your ass, what I want to kind of ask <laughs> is what, what do you need to be doing more of to make sure that you get this message out wider than your initial network? Because if we're asking you to think strategically about what you've already done in terms of the deconstruction route which is a process that's incredibly painful, that requires influence, that requires a lot of foresight and, and le- levels of risk. 
people are only really willing to take risk when they can see some, some landmarks ahead of them. So for you, how strategically and what do you need to be doing more of that you're not currently doing in order to get that message out? Can you just tell us who you are and where you're from? Sorry, my name's Caleb. Yeah. Thank you, Caleb. Absolutely. So I think three provocative and interesting questions which actually relate to both of mm-hmm. the organisations. So if, if we take the first one about the process of the shift and yeah. the governance in particular around that. Which also relates a bit yeah. to this one. But, uh, yeah, so a lot of people say, how did you pull that off? Because, you know, most boards will say... and. Uh, I, I'm, before I agreed to take the job, I did a lot of research on the board and I spoke to a lot of people and say, you want a transformation. If I'm going to transform this organization, it's going to be a complete overhaul. It's not going to be tweaking. Are they really up for that? And the people that I spoke to said, yes, they are. So that was the first thing. So you, you've got to sell into the board first, else you're wasting your time. And I knew that if my board didn't really believe in this, I was just going to be banging my head against a brick wall. So how do you get them to... That buy-in, good question. Depends on your board, depends on how involved they are in the organization. I mean, my board is, I'm actually glad that somebody else did that for me. So when I joined, the board had already decided it needed to change because I have some of the most senior influential people in the UAE sit on my board, including Minister of Foreign Affairs. and whole, So even getting them in one room is, is a challenge. So I think it depends. But if you have a board that's very engaged and you talk to them regularly, I think it's, that's the conversation that has to start there. There's a reason why we need to change, and I think having other examples of other ex- organizations that have changed helps. So I had the advantage of coming from Shell Foundation, which had undergone a similar transformation itself. So I could say, okay, I'm going to overhaul this organization using this kind of model. Are you okay with that? So if you have a model that's already known and successful, that, of course, helps. But And, and then, of course, you need the, the, the CEO, the director, has to believe in that passionately if you don't believe in it passionately you're not going to do it and it's not going to happen so i think those two things um yeah yeah do you want to yeah just on, i suppose transition. question two probably relates more to it mm. I mean, we're, we're lucky you know so, so peter um who founded the trust you know he was a business entrepreneur before and he, he sometimes calls himself a social entrepreneur and, and we do I think take risks in the education world that the, that the government certainly wouldn't uh, take, and we, you know, we now have a program uh, taking kids to uh, the US. So we take uh, bright middle-income, low-income kids from the UK, and we um, and, the, and and we, well, I think we placed about 100 kids now in the Ivy Leagues in the US. And, and when we first uh, thought about that, a lot of people said you're crazy, and, and uh, you know, but we have funded that program. Um, People's lives have changed. Now that was Peter basically being you know, an entrepreneur. So I, I think certainly in education, I think that's what we're about in some ways is, is being entrepreneurial in a way. And because Peter's a, a business background, that has brought other business entrepreneurs into the Sutton Trust. So you know we have twenty five members on our advisory and development board now. Um, so I think we do take risks, uh, but they are well they're well informed risks. I suppose we do a lot of. Um, evidence around that but I think you absolutely I, I mean that for me that is part of it you know and, and that the government won't do things that we'll, we will certainly do um, so yeah how do you find the role of entrepreneurial philanthropy yeah well that uh, mm. leads on nicely so uh, yes absolutely so I think foundations that is the competitive advantage of foundation you can take risks that's the whole point mm. right you're taking private capital in the main and deploying it for public good that's kind of one of the definitions of philanthropy so Yes, you should be taking risks. Uh, Shell Foundation, we call the model enterprise-based philanthropy. 
before anybody had coined the phrase, you know, um, venture philanthropy, we actually coined the word uh, angel philanthropy because we were essentially angel investing in social enterprises. And in the main, we're all related to the energy sector. So um, now the model we have at Emirates Foundation is very different. It's much more traditional. But, uh, you know, would I like to see more Shell Foundations directly investing, putting in seed capital, startup capital, grant finance, by the way, in the stages before you are ready to take any more kind of sophisticated uh, finance. Yes, that's absolutely what the philanthropic sector should be doing, going in and filling the gaps. So, And that's what we hear all the time, that when you look at people investing in social enterprise, we can't get the initial grant finance to, to kickstart us. Um, so, yeah, if only there were more. Go talk to Shell Foundation, they might be able to help you. <laughs> One thing I'll just Well, they're add- probably not because you're nuclear, right? So maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> But they're quite progressive. I mean, yeah. the other thing I'd add, which has been interesting for us, is that because we've got all these amazing business people on our board, um, but I do think it's a partnership with the educationalists that, that we work with as well. So I, I think you have to be a bit careful sometimes, certainly in education, where you just get a bunch of business people and then they tell schools what to do, right? And I think for us it's been very much uh, taking some of the business disciplines, certainly in the way we run, but I think sharing that with people that know how the education system works and, and bringing that together. And, and the Sutton Trust is very careful in the way it positions that, I think. Mm. So that final question yes. in terms of how to get the message out, what, what something you may already be doing. Something about yes, we yeah. repeat that. Bit, <laughs> so, um, yes, what can I do more? Well, that, that does keep me awake a lot at night. So one of the things I try to do is, so now we've done this at Emirates Foundation, I'm trying to... Uh, use that as a case study and showcase that. So we are members of a regional network of foundations which are in the main very traditional and again I'm trying to say guys look if we can transform you can too because we are a semi-government kind of you know big organization that wasn't an easy change management process so if we can do it you as the smaller Jordanian or Lebanese or Syrian or Palestinian entity can probably do it much more quickly and more effectively so I think using the case study that we have now we have three years of Experience, uh, which is not nearly enough, but better than nothing, to go out and talk at events like this, to be honest. I mean, this probably is, you know, it's not my day job, but I, I make the time and effort to come to events like this, not only because even if we didn't have a partnership with LSE, because I think the word has to get out there, that philanthropy needs to change, and organizations are changing, and there are some great models of people doing it in a very high-impact, effective way, but there needs to be more. And the only way you're going to get traction and change at scale is if people believe and see the success of different models. So if people can see, well, actually, you know, so if, we, if our reputation goes, you know, through the roof, then, then others are going to say, oh, hang on, let's see how did they do that and why did they do it. So I think it's about sharing case studies. Mm-hmm. I, I guess one point towards within that would be, I can see that you're doing it through environments like this, but the bit that's keeping you up awake, and awake at night is probably because there's thoughts that... Ah, there must be more ways that you can do this. Yeah. And so I'm kind of trying to poke into that a bit. Well, and, and I think part of our work with the OECD was that. So I was, you know, when the OECD first came to us, I was like, really? You know, this kind of bureaucratic organization. I love the OECD, by the way. Uh, you know, but, but then I said, these guys have convening power. So if you want to get to the G20, you can do it through the OECD. If you want to get to the international development community, you can do it through the OECD. So, so I'm trying to find other platforms outside of our immediate remit where we can talk more about the, the shift.
I, mean, I do think the market is changing, you know, because I do, I do think we, we hopefully are, are doing very well in terms of what Claire's talked talk about, but, and we do well on the fundraising side. So I think other charitable organisations think, right, they, they're doing exactly. let's Let's try and see how we can yeah. do this a bit better. So I think there's, uh, it's early days, but I do think, I hope the market shifts, because to be frank, that's, I hope that's where you're, you know, you only get funding if you're, you're meeting those very different sort of principles. Mm-hmm. But that, but who knows? Hmm. Has the Sutton Trust altered its strategy for communicating? No, we've always, uh, you know, communicating what to potential funders or to the media at large, or to media at large, or either really. Um, so media, media has always been a big thing for us because um, we're a relatively small organisation. So that's always <coughs> been, you know, raising the agenda for us in, in the media. And we found that government ministers will treat us more seriously if they see a report on the front page of the Times or Guardian. You know, they tend to, and then and then the journalists like us because they they think they think we, we're in with the government. So it's a sort of virtuous mm-hmm. circle. So so that's really helped us a lot. Um, we, I'd, I'd say we work, you know, 50% we, we almost on commissioning research and evidence and 50% thinking about how we communicate it both to mm. funders and media. We, we work far more on the communications piece than most foundations, I would say. Mm. Again, I think it's a bit more around, a bit of a maybe cliche, but, but if you're business-orientated, you have to think very hard about how you present yourself. So when we produce these cases for support which i'm sure you, you guys would do is you know we really think hard about that mm-hmm. stuff i mean re- every single word on a pitch document we will go mm-hmm. over in in real detail we will mm-hmm. think about the press releases really i mean you know i can't emphasize enough i'm a former journalist i would say this but i you know when i observe other foundations uh, i i what the main one of the main things i find is that they're doing some really interesting stuff but they're not communicating it mm-hmm. properly they're not spending time doing that so we work really hard on that. Thank you. I've realised um, belatedly that you both have um, journalism Indeed. in your um, <laughs> CVs, which I think is... That is unusual, yeah. It is unusual, absolutely. Um, thank you very much. I, th- I think you'll all agree that this was um, a very thought-provoking, I hope challenging in a positive sense, um, space to think um, about the meaning of philanthropy and the meaning of philanthropic partnerships and the shifting and mutating nature of those philanthropic partnerships within sectors and between sectors. Um, just before I thank our, our two panellists, I'd like to say that for, for LSE, we very much hope that this is um, the first of many opportunities to create, create this sort of space to think, to really to think about the, the changing lexicon, not just to accept those words, but actually to explore what it means to be an entrepreneurial philanthropist, what it means to be a strategic and effective philanthropist, what that might look like in 2020, what it might look like in Latin America or India, as well as the US and, and the UK. Um, and we're pleased to see so many of you here today. Finally, it just remains for me to thank um, really wholeheartedly our two panellists, Claire Craft scott from the Emirates Foundation, Dr Lee Elliott-Major from the Sutton Trust. I'm sure you'll join me in thanking them today. Thank you.